Hello and welcome to episode 141 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, and Chris Weston. Well, hello, Matt, and hello, everybody that's listening to our splendid podcast. I hope you're well. Did you have a good week? Uh, I had a, um, a an interesting week where towards the end I started to get a bit of a sore throat and a bit of a headache, and so I had to spend a day or so saying, no, 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 it's just a cold, because the other thing starts on your chest. Um... I met some people. I went to an event, which we will talk about in a little bit. Um, I got at the very last minute invited to go to watch the rugby at Twickenham, which was a fascinating event. Um, I went swimming. There you go. That's Ooh. that's the week in um, swimming. That's brave in this in this, uh, in this current climate. You know, surrounding yourself with bodily fluid. Yes, secretions. Mm. Yes, um, I thought it was brave. I did. I got my new smartwatch thing that I had great pain in getting hold of um, arrived, and it's it's actually very clever. It will tell me how far I've swum, uh, which really? is basically just might as well on the screen say not very much. Surely, just count lengths. I mean, that's how we traditionally do it. And yeah, I know, but the thing circle. is that this physical exertion thing is so unusual for me that <laughs> if I get past about three, I lose count because I'm hyperventilating. I'm wondering which day of the week it is. So you now it keeps it all track of it, which is good. Um, good. So, yeah. How about you? Well, I've been in, um, where was I? I was in France this week doing a session on, well, doing a session for CIOs. Um, it was an IDC uh, workshop that we, we ran. It was a free one that we asked people to come to and we had a great um, turnout. And it was about board communications, how CIOs should manage there. I find my CIOs quite bored. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. no, that's it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the um, how they should manage their relationship with their peers or uh, betters, maybe on the uh, exec board of their companies, and that was a great fun. That was really great, good fun. I enjoyed doing that with my colleague Mark, and um, uh, everybody was really engaged. It was just one of those, you know, one of those events. Sometimes that you, you know, you do these kind of talks sometimes and. You never really know how they're going to go. You don't know how the audience is going to be. You don't know whether it's going to land or whether you're going to see a lot of confused and blank faces. Um, it does happen quite a bit in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really good fun. And I enjoyed it. So that was uh, that was great. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's most of, uh, of last week in terms of the uh, exciting stuff. Um, you've been out stockpiling, stock, stockpiling toilet rolls or whatever else it is that currently people seem to be buying to abandon. Well, I did go shopping on uh, Saturday, and uh, there was everything was plentiful, so I didn't see the uh, the need to stockpile uh, anything really. It all seems to be fairly you know, fairly low key in Tamworth, as long, as long as we have the very very bare essentials here. I'm afraid we, we we really don't need very much else. You know, it's a it's a very simple simple place. Fair enough. Uh, Valentine household, we've implemented a no number twos other than at work or school. Uh, that's really good the route but this is how we're going to get through it yeah, use other right. people's Lee roll uh, use other people's facilities yeah that's exactly. a good idea and as a, as a home worker in, uh, I, I, I would be struggling to I'd have to go to the pub now which is a terrible <laughs> sacrifice <laughs> yeah that could be quite dangerous um, so it's just the two of us again this week after uh, we had uh, Alex joining us last week um, we are going to think about topical things Uh, We're going to talk about um, coronavirus and a collection of tools and services that's been put together looking at how technology can help to be able to 
analyze and explore and explain. Um, and maybe talk a bit about what uh, uh, we've been picking up in terms of good policy. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about uh, the perils and the pitfalls and sometimes the pleasure of technology that has been designed specifically for a particular industry segment. And that should take us through to around 40 minutes, which is the aim, of course, of this very venture. So shall we um, press on? Let's. Well, as you said, Matt, we certainly can't go anywhere at the moment without hearing about and talking about, thinking about the coronavirus, COVID-19, and all of the ways it's affecting the way we uh, we go to work. I'm certainly now under um, instructions from head office that we're not to travel unless absolutely necessary to other countries. And there's definitely a ban on traveling to the obvious places, China and Italy, Northern Italy, and um, Hong Kong, those kind of things. So and we also, because we're an events company as well as an advisory company, um, we're seeing a lot of pressure on various events that people don't want to go. Either the companies are saying that they're not allowing their employees to attend events of over 100 people or something like that, or they're pulling out completely, as we saw with Mobile World Congress and things like that. And when I was in the Middle East the other day, we had while we were, we were there, Gartner cancelled an event in Saudi Arabia and it's a um it it's bound to happen right it's partly because i guess um companies do care about their employees and they care about infecting their customers because that's the last thing they want and also they don't really want to be asking people to go places where they might get ill and they and then end up with some sort of corporate um lawsuit um, about why are they forcing people and or you know pressuring people to go into dangerous places so there's lots of reasons why but we are now seeing people respond to this, aren't we? And people are very sensibly deciding not to put themselves in situations where they might be you know, coming into contact with people that, that could potentially have coronavirus and be asymptomatic at the moment. And the government are talking about how they are going to, they're, they're trying to restrict um, movement of people. They, I think they, I think today they said that within a couple of weeks they're going to start to do more about closing down um, certain events, trying to stop people getting together. And, and yeah, there's a lot of sense in that, in as much as if you can slow the spread of the disease and shallow out the peak a little bit, then A, it stays below the capacity of the health service and also moves it into the summer where everybody's hoping, I think, that everything gets a little bit less um, constrained in the summer because at least flu season's over and all of the kind of usual winter rush on the NHS comes um you know to an end so um everything's fairly sensible right now i mean yes okay people are sometimes going out and buying all the toilet paper but that's i think a little bit um isolated i don't think it's happening everywhere and i think fair you know fair enough in some cases not necessarily toilet paper but if you're washing your hands more than you used to and you're making the making sure the kids wash their hands when they come back from school or whatever you'll get through soap more than you used to right so you're going to buy more of it that's and that's not what our supply chains are used to. So they're going to be a little, there's going to be a bit of a shock. But um, yeah, it's cool, quite interesting. And so in the techni technology side, I noticed that at IDC, we um, prepared a little bit of research uh, that one of our collaboration analysts has done into organizations like Blue Jeans and Zoom and one or two others who have added to their offerings. So their free offerings, their free tiers, their, their, um, trial uh, periods 
in order to help people through the through this period really i think they've realized that this is unbudgeted for a lot of it departments a lot of people have been suddenly being asked what would happen if we tried to get all our people to work from home and um it's exceptional spend and if they can get people onto their tools now a lot of organizations who maybe culturally i mean we've talked about this a lot in the past haven't we we talked about the you know with pauline and all of the flexible movement stuff some people some organizations culturally aren't really up for remote working but this may well push them into at least trying it and then maybe some of them will like it and continue to do it so you, you know, it makes sense in many ways that if you're a tech vendor with a with a tool in this um, space that you'd give people the option to try it for an extended period um, but i do gather from my you know my contacts and colleagues at idc that the vendors are very keen not to be seen to be profiteering or you know really trying to taking advantage of it they really want to be seen to be helping at this point uh, and no good deed goes on you know unrewarded etc or unpunished maybe that's the uh, that's the um traditional response i think there's um i mean it, it, never a disaster is a good marketer going to uh, miss an opportunity if they possibly can um i think i wrote a piece last week about some of the barriers that there might exist to yes, did, people being able to uh, adopt this stuff and I, i'm i think this is going to be interesting on the one hand i can see a scenario where at the back of this we see a great leap forward in remote and home working alternatively i can see a very different outcome which is that there is a huge pushback against it with a we told you this wasn't a good idea um and i've got no idea how that's going to pan out and we'll just have to wait and see over the next um, few months. I think if you look at some of the technical barriers that there are to uh, organisations working suddenly, effectively, much more remotely, um, I think you've got probably a fairly slim chance that there's a problem with the vendors, although there might be just one of those um, kind of catastrophic problems that the, the likes of Google or um, uh, Microsoft have every so often that takes a crap load of people out all at the same time and if that happens whilst everybody's increasingly relying on um, working from home then that could be even worse than it usually is that whole thing about um, it being like an airline and killing people in batches that idea of you have a an outage that actually overall you're far more stable and reliable than people individually using not cloud-based services, but if it happens on the cloud, then everybody gets hit at the same time. So it looks much worse in the way that an airline crash looks much worse than road traffic accidents, even though far more people are killed on the route to the airport than they are from the plane. That's one bit of it. Um, I think there's um, organisations that have decided to adopt cloud services and try to make them as much like a traditional firewall-based model uh, as possible by, say, things like routing traffic so that you can only get out to the cloud-based service by connecting to a corporate vpn that takes you into somewhere i think those people are going to possibly find the error of that judgment and not understanding how cloud models work uh, will cost them because the the kind of the vpns of this world will be the bit that really gets stretched yeah they are the bottlenecks aren't they i know in fact i've had a conversation with a customer just today about that about how they're um configuring their cloud as they move more into the cloud, how they're configuring that and whether they continue with that sort of model, which feels more secure. It feels like you've got better control, right? But it's it is it's kind of using new tools in a in an old way. Um, but of course, you still need to secure your access and all of that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, when you get a situation like this, you don't really want to be maintaining a bottleneck, do you? 
No, absolutely. And then I think the um, the other big technical, I mean, there are many more technical issues potentially, I'm sure, but uh, the, the really big technical issue I see is home broadband. And home broadband has been designed and scaled primarily for domestic use. And that's lots of download, uh, video in particular, and the disproportionate amount of traffic that is video is huge. Uh, but relatively meagre upload speeds and not geared around sustained, consistent connection. And so if you've got lots of VPN use, you've got lots of video conference use, lots of screen sharing, lots of stuff like Citrix going on, and high contention ratios on relatively low upload speeds, um, I think in particular areas you're going to find that the connectivity could be rather crap. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Headline numbers. I'm sure you're right. You know, contention rates and all of that kind of things will will, will come in. Um, and that will be an issue. But it's a bit like the electric car thing, isn't it? And people, more people buying electric cars all of a sudden, sudden and they all want to charge their cars up at five o'clock when they get home from work. That won't work either. And we need yeah. to figure out ways of managing capacity. So we were having meetings today about what contingencies we need to put in place. <clears throat> and actually, interestingly for us, um, part of our business is about running uh, uh, homes for retired elderly people. And that's anything in comparison to the conversations we're having about being able to continue provision of technology. Actually, what you do with places which are full of people who are the most vulnerable to this disease Absolutely. is mind-blowingly complicated. And I'm glad that isn't part of my remit, quite frankly, although we're doing all we can to support the people in the business who it is their remit. Um but uh, I think actually spreading bets on this sort of thing. So um, actually increasing the number of mobile phones that we're going to uh, make available to people like contact center staff so that mm -hmm. they're not totally reliant on IP-based communication for voice over IP so that you can route some of the telephony out to just mobile phones over yep, mobile phone connections and just spreading it around a bit rather than putting everything down on the same uh, kind of thing. I'm also working on the principle, though we've got DR sites uh, available for us to be able to move people into, I'm going to work on the assumption that if we were in a position where we needed to do that, and you know, be quite clear, we're not in any way. This is just like kind of theoretical planning for potential um, scenarios over the next few months. But if, if you thought that you were going to move into a DR site, uh, you can pretty much guarantee in this scenario that there'll be a stack load of other clients of that DR provider who will also expect to be able to move into that DR site at exactly the same time. And so kind of assume that none of that's going to be available. Um, but over all of this, I don't think that the issues towards uh, more remote working, other than the kind of working at home on a Friday stuff, um, which increasingly is common in organisations, but is always done with air quotes around working at home on a Friday, um, actually trying to be able to make an organization work remote most of the time, even if it's only a few, for a few days, say if an office location was shut down because of needing to do a deep clean or whatever, um, actually just doing it for a few days when you've not got the culture in place for that to happen on a regular basis and people are of the mindset that they're at work when they're in the office, I think organizations are going to struggle with that quite a lot, even though the technology is probably all, all there for them to be able to do it. It's not is one thing for having the technology available. It's another thing entirely about the mindset of managers, of staff members, of working practice, of a whole bunch of stuff. And you'll suddenly realize 
how maybe dependent on an office you have become. Or maybe not. Who knows? It could go either way. But I, I think that it's all going to be about people and culture, ultimately. And forcing it like this, this is my point. I think there is a slim chance, if some of this stuff happens at scale, that it could dent the flexible working, remote working movement for for traditional organisations for quite some time because the experience of it could be not that good and that will be the, the, the proof that a bunch of reactionary managers will have to be able to say, oh, it doesn't work, does it? Mm, I think that's true, but you, you've got, you can't underestimate the power of kind of what people want. And when once people have had a freedom or they've had a thing, then it's quite hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I guess also there's a there's a story. So a bit, a bit about uh, people power. That this is more about what you don't want. So this was about the kids in China. Have you heard this one about? Um, so it reminds me of. Do you remember there was a story about there was a, a product being sold called a mosquito, and it was a box that you could screw to the wall outside your shop. And if you, if it was a kind of place where you used to get gangs of uh, teenagers um, hanging around outside, and you want to get rid of them this thing would emit kind of high frequency beeps and it would be really annoying and it would the kids would wander off but it was so high frequency that older people couldn't hear it so it was like just annoying to the kids and it was like hooray what a great idea haha <laughs> um and then the kids um some sprite spark um recorded the noise on their mobile phone and then they were sharing it around to use a text um alert so that they could send text to each other in class and the teacher couldn't hear the beep but they could so it was like um you know they 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 repurposed it for their for their own use well i gather and i, I this could be apocryphal right? i can't i i don't i didn't look into it in, de- in detail but i gather that what's happened in wuhan is in um so in china there's a there's a tool from alibaba called ding talk and it is the their big remote working app and it's the one that caused um alibaba to have to earn 10,000 servers in one day um a few few weeks ago when this all kicked off because they had a massive take-up of this thing. But employees don't really like it because it's really intrusive, apparently, in terms of when you log on, when you log off, you know, how many keystrokes you've done and all this sort of thing. Well, the schools have all been uh, signing up to this so that they can homeschool kids. And um, where kids have been, where, where towns have been quarantined, the kids can't go to school. The, the schools have signed up to it. Kids don't like it. So apparently what the kids have done is they, they realise that um, apps with a rating of under two stars got taken off the store so they all uh piled on and gave it one out of five when they and uh and now they can't use it anymore because it's off the store so you see there are ways and and when people want something or don't want something they they find ways that's reminiscent of the uh i can't remember it in germany there's a performance artist who was uh taking a wheelbarrow through full of um oh of telephones and mobile telephones phones, yeah. with like uh, google maps traffic, on traffic, them yeah. yeah to make it look like there were traffic jams emerging everywhere mm, well, um yeah i think it, it's um it, it's going to be interesting it's a kind of the, there's the potential here for a big experiment in remote working that could shift and i think the other bit i'm it kind of reminds me of there was um can't remember if it's tube strikes, if there was some sort of outage or whatever. But the, when on London Underground, there was a whole bunch of things going on that meant that people had to find alternative routes. And what they found was that people who had just got into the habit of, of going to work every day on the same route, day in, day out, because I think it was a strike and there's a whole bunch of lines that were taken out. Um, 
they were forced to find alternative routes to get to work. And they found, in many cases, through the Oyster Card um, data, they found that people not only changed their routes, but then once the trains were back again, they'd found routes that were better for them, whether mm-hmm. quicker or more enjoyable or not as underground or whatever it was. And I think that that, that probably will be the yeah. thing if we do see this happen, that there'll be, there will be changes in behaviour. I think the most interesting thing about this is that organisations like to have this nicely tight and managed and and a, a lot of the technology that we have available to us today enables people to be able to have much more agency and if we look for a positive thing that could come out of this um, from a tech perspective actually being able to just force that issue of more people taking control of the agency that they have now for control freak management in so many of the organizations that surround us that's going to be terrifying because they suddenly realise that maybe the stories they've been telling for so long that they have to be in the office and they have to work there are not only not true, but people can actually get on with it quite well without them. Um, so there's some interesting potential outcomes out of all of this, just as, as as we start to see what might be the possibilities of how people continue to work where we have maybe restriction on travel or maybe restriction on access to particular places. Mm, absolutely. Um, there's also... Um, if you remember back into those happy days where we moaned about politics rather than moaning about um, massive spread of disease, uh, there was the political, was it Tech Handbook? Uh, that That's we talked right, yeah. about And you interviewed somebody about a few months back? So it was Nathan Young, wasn't it, who, um, who uh, from New Speak House, which is like a um, political science uh, college, uh, if I get that right. And that's... Um, they set up this thing called the Election Tech Handbook, and it was basically a resource that was contributed to. It's like a Google document, completely open, that people could contribute to. And if they wanted to get involved in providing tech for elections, so that the kind of things you sometimes see on news, newspaper websites, or or some sometimes it's on like the Thirty Eight Degrees or those those campaigning type websites where it says if you are you know if you want to know how to vote, then answer this questionnaire and you you can put your views down about various issues and at the end it'll tell you whether you should be voting for the Liberals or voting Labour or voting Green or whatever. And all of these um, uh, tools were, were, the idea was they were gathered together on this particular page so that people who were interested in that, who wanted to contribute, who wanted to work on this, who wanted to take something and make it better, wanted to use data in a different way, could go to that document. And um, it was pretty successful in terms of things like, you know, um, proxy voting and uh, vote swapping sites and things like that. So Nathan and the guys decided to, when this uh, the whole coronavirus thing blew up, they thought, well, how why don't we pivot this and create one for tech that helps people track what's going on in their area, track how many people are infected, maybe, maybe give them advice into how you know how to how to respond what you know should they be going out should they not i mean i don't know really there's lots of different things that you could do with the data that's being made available by different um different jurisdictions to give people better data about how they should proceed around the whole coronavirus thing so they've created a a completely sort of sister site called um coronavirus handbook or something like that we can put the link in the um in the in on on the website afterwards and it's about it's basically the same thing and it's really cool in as much as there's lots of good conversations happening around it and there's whatsapp groups and lots of good stuff going into that um document and hopefully it means that people 
again, in very early days with this one, but hopefully it means that people who have an interest in using data, being able to present it in a way that people can uh, understand, can provide tools that help people to do things like understand maybe where cases are in their area. There was talk, talk recently about um, there was a tool that allowed you to essentially download your Google location data from Google and compare it on locally on your computer. So it didn't send your location data up to the, up to the internet, but compare it with publicly available um, data sets of people who have been infected. Now, these data sets were only in Taiwan and Hong Kong, right? So not very useful for you and I. But if you can imagine that being extended to say, okay, look, this is all of the different location data of people who have coronavirus, where they've been, if you, you can update your, your upload your, or not upload it, but compare your Google location data, and it'll say, well, actually, you were, you were within, you know, 500 yards of somebody. So maybe if you are starting to feel a bit ill, you should take it very seriously. You know, there are things that we can do around that. And that's just an example. So yeah, lots of good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so we'll put a link to that on the website, um, just as you've been talking there. And obviously, this is a recorded show. So this isn't um, uh, as as immediate as it might otherwise sound. But there's just been news flash through that Italy has now lamp, um, locked down the entire country. So um, that's a holiday in Italy over Easter, pretty much uh, knocked on the head now, I think. Um, mm, but wow. uh, it's, yeah, uh, the the idea of trying to be able to uh, get Italy to obey rules at an entire national level is frankly hilarious, but that's uh, another well, story. Maybe, maybe that's, why, um, that's why they've decided to go for the full whole hog, you know. If you, um, if you tell people they can't do anything, then they might do half of the things. And if you tell them they can only do half of the things, they might do, you know, they'll do 90% of the things. Well, it sounded yesterday on Sunday that the uh, announcements about uh, restrictions, increased restrictions on travel in the northern parts of Italy just resulted in a mass exodus from the north heading south. So it kind of, oh, this is where the, 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 um, the psychology of this stuff is also so important, isn't it? That actually the, the way that uh, coronavirus has mutated from a, uh, a genetic thing into a meme in that you know the original sense of the term that Richard Dawkins came up with this this way in which it is having dramatic impact on movement of people around uh, the, the stock markets uh, all sorts of things it's fascinating to look at it and how it is changing how people are behaving even though still it's relatively a small thing yeah yeah, that's right. Um, I think that that's also been the the case with the UK government. In as much as the the key is trying to do the right thing at the right time, and I think they are taking the advice of the experts uh, that they once upon a time decided they had enough of, but they've they've, they've wheeled them back in for uh, this because it's serious. Um, if you try to lock things down too quickly, then you a you cause problems, and b people maybe don't take it seriously because they think it's overreaction and then you get you don't get the long-term benefit whereas you kind of wait till they're just the right time and you you get the the best benefit most benefit but also those cultural things about as you say people are deciding to travel very quickly from one place to another and and, and not necessarily get, getting the outcome you want so um yeah it's uh it, it, it's very difficult i mean i'm not who'd be in um trying to do make public policy around this is it's very very tricky but um yeah it's there's plenty to say there's plenty of good tools plenty of interest in trying to help people make better uh decisions 
um, and be able to weigh up the risks more better. Because, you know, as we've spoken on this podcast many times, people, uh, we're, we're just not very good at interpreting stats and behaving rationally, are we? That's just not, that's just not what we're good at. No, that's, uh, that's certainly the case. And uh, anyway, I better go and just check on our uh, toilet roll supply and uh, then we'll get back to you. So earlier this week, or actually last week, uh, I had the um, pleasure of visiting uh, Oxfordshire. And I went to a hotel just uh, outside Tame and I was at the Housing Technology 2020 event. And it was a bit odd quite frankly, because it was pretty much like stepping back about 15 years. Uh, The housing technology world is an interesting world. It is one where there are a number of incumbent organisations, maybe four organisations, who provide what is known as housing management software. And housing management software is everything that you would possibly need to be able to run a housing provider, whether that's as part of a local authority or as a housing association. And if you talk to people in the housing industry about these products uh, and the vendors aren't in the room, the amount of moaning that there is about what these companies do is remarkable. And it's they're not responsive. They uh, lock you in. You can't get out of it. They don't do a very good job. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and the thing that I find really interesting about this, and it's something that I've seen in other sectors as well. So, for example, in the legal sector, you've got um, law firm uh, case management systems, which are effectively document management systems that have been priced for law firms, i.e. they're much more expensive than just a commodity um, document management system. And there seems to me to be this really, really interesting dilemma. Um, we're in an era where there's a loss of... Uh, a lot of talk now about building rather than buying. So developing software because software is relatively cheap to be able to build now that you don't need to have hardware in place to host it on because of the cloud. That's the argument. I'm not sure I fully agree with it because I don't think the cost actually ever sat in the hardware. It's just that was the only bit that was hugely visible. Um, so because we've got the ability to be able to build stuff, the temptation is to build stuff. But what's the point in building something that somebody has already built for you, especially if it's complicated, because you end up then in dark alleyways, kind of just spending your time feeding a beast of software that never really gets you anywhere. But on the other hand, if you subscribe into a piece of software that is designed specifically for your sector, what you've done is basically taken out a whole bunch of ability for you to be able to get some sort of competitive advantage over other people in your organization because you're all using the same thing so whether that's a housing management system or whether it's a uh, law firm's case management system or i'm sure there are a stack of other examples of these kind of things and so what do you do do you go down the route of this bespoke software that you build yourself or do you go down the route of um uh, software that has been developed specifically for people just like you and which you probably will end up becoming like some sort of weird Stockholm syndrome uh, victim, uh, just being able to be stuck with your prisoner. Um, now, in in the housing world, and I've also seen this interesting in the pharmaceutical world, and I'm sure it's happening in other spaces as well, is there is a new breed of um, sector-specific software, so something that's built to be able to manage the operations of a particular sort of business but that is built on top of a software as a service platform so particularly 
um, with uh, Salesforce in the pharmaceutical world. Um, I can't remember the name of the product, but there's a there's a very well respected and big player uh, in the world of uh, pharmaceutical CRM, which isn't actually a product in its own right. It's something that's been built on top of Salesforce and it's branded and marketed as its own thing, but actually underpinning it is Salesforce. Um, similarly, in the housing world, there are a number of um, vendors now who've built a bunch of stuff on top of Microsoft Dynamics. And the interesting thing for me about that is that you have then um, the, the sort of laziness that can build into a sector-specific piece of software that's been built by a company that's managed to build something to support a particular industry because these new wave of built on top of type products uh they've they, they've got the thing underneath it that continually moves and you've got continuously changing cloud software as a service you have to keep yourself up to date with where the vendor of that thing is going because if you don't your thing will stop working so it puts in a level of not as lazy from the outset, but it still doesn't get you out of this problem about not being able to do anything different from all your competitors. Um, and I don't know many more than that, but I just find it really, it's a curious world because on the one hand, there is efficiency from software being delivered in a way that you don't have to build it. On the other hand, it doesn't feel necessarily of the spirit of the moment. So um, what do you reckon? Well, what, a, uh, what an articulate outburst. I... Um... I hear you actually, and I and I I agree with a lot of what you say. I do think that this is always a very tricky thing, right? So uh, I've had a conversation um, this week with a customer about the fact that they've got bespoke software they've had for a long time. It needs to be managed and maintained, and they decided to abandon it and and finally move to um, Dynamics and build something something on top of it. So the they now have that same sort of situation going on, right? They're, they're very nervous that they're not going to get something which ha which supports their businesses closely without lots of bespoke work, which they don't really want to do because they're sensibly trying to avoid that. And they're also nervous about use, you know, they're going to have to then work with a third party that they've never worked with before and they're going to tell them something and they're not going to understand their industry. They're not going to, you know, it's not going to be in the, in the bone like it is um, if you've got your own developers. Where if you have a certain, you have certain terms, you have a certain understanding of the way customers work, you kind of take certain things for granted, and therefore you know you're going to end up asking for something. They're going to deliver it, um, maybe after a two-week sprint, and then you're going to say, "Oh no, no, that's not what I asked for." Then you have to do the two-week sprint again, or you have to do half of it again because you, it's very hard to articulate requirements and articulate how a business works in a, a session with a business analyst. You know, this is all, this is difficult stuff. And that's why people tend to like to go for software. You know, how many times have I heard that? You know, when we see a vendor, what's the most important? Do they have experience in our industry? Can they put something together which is which is for washing machine manufacturers or for estate agents or for um, you know garage door repairers? It's it's every every industry has its own little um, bit of uniqueness. And the software industry, way back when, you know, back when I was uh, first starting, and well, I worked on, I, I wrote software for organisations which, which was bespoke, um, and we put systems in that did the job because there was nothing else that would do it. You know, there weren't any of the big ERP systems. And then over the years, people started to realise actually that's quite a that's quite an expensive way to do things. And why don't they do something like put SAP in, or um, you know, put SAP in, or Dynamics, or something like that? And then they would get the best 
of practice to say, okay, oh no, but don't worry about this. Your business isn't that much different from everybody else. You should follow the same process and then we can just tweak it around the edges. And SAP ended up a bit like, like stone soup from my point of view. You know what I mean? There wasn't really anything in it. It was just they would bring all the stones and then you had to put all, you know, you had to supply all the all the good stuff yourself and you'd still end up paying through the nose for the privilege. But there is something to be said for, you know, like you say about people working on Salesforce or something like that as a platform. There's something to be said for if you've got something that works in terms of I can define a customer, I can define attributes about a customer, I can define out what uh, what my people do, I can define their attributes, I can define how they interact. And it's this is a good piece of software which is solid and works. Why would I redesign that stuff? Why don't I just want to build the the value add stuff around it. I mean, I do understand that. I think it's a perfectly reasonable model. But it's not the only model. Um, but we are still getting away from this world where you had quite a lot of software built for particular industries. You know, I worked in, you know, my first job was in catering equipment repair. And it was, I was looking after software and ended up changing the software, you know, modifying it. And there wasn't another system out there that could do what the system would do it was brilliant and we and, and i wrote modules to integrate it with things like cognito before it was before we had the internet before we had these cognito and mobile radio handsets and that was great that was it was kind of groundbreaking it was fine and then you could go and sell that software to somebody else and then you'd have a little business right and then you'd start to maintain it for other people but you'd probably be in a region you'd probably you'd probably restrict it to your particular country or maybe uh, you know, it would be it would be limited by your reach as a as a technology team and as a as a as a as an organisation. Whereas now, if you're building software, you build it in the cloud and you can pretty much sell it anywhere because you can. There's no problem in delivering it to South Africa, for example, as long as they're willing to run it from the cloud service you provide, and as long as you can provide them with some with something which is works in their currency or whatever, then you can actually deliver software all over the world. So I think we're seeing a change because those niche regional players are, they're either doing a, a, a rewrite and they're able to spread good software around the world or they're going out of business because other software companies are able to, to, to eat their lunch. And I think it's one of those things where everybody's going to have to have a different conversation about what's important to them. You know, I understand what people say about this software isn't great for us and where's a competitive advantage if we use the same software as the guys down the road. But I've seen plenty of organisations that use um, perfectly good software really, really badly. In fact, we all know that most ERP implementations get about 80% of the value, don't they? And and there is extra value to be extracted if you can if you can um, think a little bit cleverly about it, put a bit of effort into it. So actually, I think that you can run a business and use the same software as everybody else, but think about it properly really um, squeeze the best out of it. And I think you can still get competitive advantage because the software isn't what is important, actually. It's, it's what you're doing with it. It's how you're interacting with it. It's the cleanliness of the data. It's the timeliness of the data. It's a process that you put around it. So I, I, I do think that that whole, if we don't have something unique, we can't be different. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a cop-out. I think that's, I, once again, asking a technology to do the difficult stuff for us, which we do so often in business. I guess the question then is, are these sorts of products, are you buying software or are you buying a set of pre-cam processes and data structures? And I think too often they probably are sold as the former and probably the latter isn't well enough defined. And this is always, I think, the problem with, with ERP, big ERP systems as well, that 
they they kind of sold it on the basis of here's a set of pre-canned processes that you can use to run your business. But actually, when it came down to it, they wouldn't tell you what they were. And everybody would say, well, no, we can't run our business like that anyway. We've got to do, change the software to be able to make it more like what we do. And that constant battle between process and uh, uh, element of agency for an organization about the extent to which the organization should shape the way it works or the tools and services that it buys should shape it. Um, I guess the other thing, though, that maybe is changing this a bit, and I, I'm not sure necessarily is making it any easier, but is that so much of the software that we look at today is just focused on the user experience. And I don't see a huge amount of, of noise around things like service design for defining very process-centric software. And it's it's either it's a bit sort of shiny on the front end or it's still old school and big processy and workflow at the back end. But I don't necessarily see much software emerging into many markets at the moment that combines a bit of both which actually is what you really need to be able to do and i think possibly that's because in order to do that you need too much understanding and awareness of the of the process and of the organization in fact what i think you want is to have a piece of solid software which is your date which is your kind of manages your, your the core data and then you want services off that you want you want a whole bunch of APIs and ways to work with it so that you can then say, actually, what's the really, what's a big thing for us? A big thing for us is um, maybe it's, maybe you've got an HR system and you're working in your kind of world and you, every time you take somebody on, you want to have a, what they call a CBD or whatever they call it now, DBA check um, to say, is this person okay to work with vulnerable people? Now, if you're clever and you work with uh, uh, the agency that does it, maybe you can make that an integrated process so that when you have an application it automatically or you or you take somebody on that automatically happens they get an automatic email from uh, the dba people they can fill it in and it comes back to you and it all the whole process is automated and everybody's happy to do that and that's an example right whether the dba people would do that i don't know but to do that you have to work with your supplier you have to work with that agency you're working with you have to work with your software company or work with the software and the interfaces you're you're defined if you've got lucky enough to have complete access to it and think creatively about what's going to add value to your business or what's going to take away a time and a a, a significant um, blocker in your process a, a significant part of your critical critical path and so actually that's something we really need to automate and if you can do that and you've got the right software that you can work with you've got good suppliers good agencies etc that, that that have the ability to provide you with what you want, then yeah, you can you can find ways to to augment and build something which is at a core kind of vanilla, but throughout your whole sort of process view, actually unique to you, and you haven't had to build it yourself, but you you've built small parts. One of the things that um, uh, talking about IDC, we've got you know these various predictions, and one of the things we've been talking about quite a lot recently is the fact that. There's lots and lots of software going to be produced in the future, thousands of, of applications, but they'll tend to be smaller and they'll tend to be sort of low, no code kind of things. They'll tend to be hooking data together rather than people writing sort of bigger, clunkier apps as you're talking about. And I think, oh, it makes sense to me. So uh, that brings us to the end of the 141st WB40. 141, that, that feels like an auspicious number, but I can't think why at the moment. It, it's anim onomatopoeic. 
Is it? I'm not, it's certainly palindromic. Oh no, that's it, isn't it? Palindromic. Uh, I mean, it's on <laughs> no, the it does, it does it also, sound like 141. It does sound like it sounds exactly well. like 141. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's late, and I've run out of words. Uh, what is it? What What does the the third week of March hold for you? Well, we're now, uh, as I said earlier, we're in a bit of um, self. Uh, self-imposed restriction on where we're going but I am going to London tomorrow to see uh, the guys on the CIO 100 judging panel so it's we're coming up to the final bit of that something you'll be well aware of Matt this is this is your old stamping ground so that's uh, going to happen tomorrow and we're going to have a bit of a drink uh, with uh, Mr Qualtro and uh, so because he's leaving IDG in the CIO magazine after many years service so uh, that'll be fun very good yes I feel the first year in five years that I haven't been involved in the judging and it was obviously all too much for Ed and so he's left yeah that's, that's right like you were keeping it together yeah could be that my my entry for the CI 100 was so dreadfully thought there's no point in any of this anymore <laughs> <laughs> that was a knowing laugh Christopher um, <laughs> good yeah, we'll be back next week um, we are sourcing a few more people to come and join us on as guests uh, for the whole show. Um, and we'd like to extend that invitation uh, to anybody who listens who's got something interesting to say, because we, we'd love to uh, have uh, some more people just join us, uh, as we did with uh, Alex Rossley last week. So if you're interested in that, get in touch with us on uh, Twitter at WB40Podcast, uh, or if you're on the WhatsApp group already on there. And if you haven't joined the WhatsApp group yet, we're starting to get now closer to the point at which uh, we reach the limits of the WhatsApp group capacity. So um, get in there whilst you still can. Drop us a line on Twitter and we can send you the magic link. And um, until next week, wish you a very good bye. Adios. You can find us at wb40podcast.com on the internet. You can find us on Twitter at wb40podcast. I think we once set up an Instagram account, but Lord only knows what that is, and we never use it anyway. And uh, if you want to join the WhatsApp group, drop us a line there. And we can find us actually in the audio version on all good podcasting platforms. Why not leave us a review? <laughs>